0: Indeed, that's not like a one and done, amen. I'm so thankful. Last week, we got to celebrate the resurrection. And as we're settling back in, would you just pray with me? Heavenly Father, we did just celebrate your resurrection, God. We saw your power in raising Jesus Christ from the grave, God, and that same power is available to us. God, I pray that you would be here with your resurrection power, that you'd open our minds and our ears to hear your word, God. I pray that you would do a work within us. Take my feeble words, God, and and use them with power by your spirit. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well so we did celebrate the resurrection just last Sunday and then we also dug into God's word and said what, saw what he has to say about resurrection. We looked at the evidences, the proofs of the resurrection but we also looked at how God turns it around and uses the resurrection to prove some other things to us, seven of them in fact. You might remember a couple of those. And uh, two of them in particular that I want to just recap for us. First of all, the resurrection was God's proof that Jesus is Lord, and it was also God's proof that you and I have the power as believers to live a godly life. And so we looked at Romans fourteen nine, where it says, "For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that we." so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. The purpose in the resurrection. It proved that he is the Lord and so that he can be our Lord. And remember that Greek word Lord, kurios, which means master or supreme authority or one whom I follow. And we also saw that true faith is more than just surrendering to Jesus or, or, or trusting him as our savior, but also surrendering to him as our Lord. It's obedience to his word. Now imagine if when you were saved, God said, okay, you're my child now, I'm your Lord. You have to do everything I say but he gave us no power with which to do that. We'd be in a bigger mess than we were to start with because now there's this whole new understanding of everything we're not to do, and as Jason said, everything we are to do, and we'd be overwhelmed. But along with the resurrection, God gave not only power to cancel out our past, but power to live a godly life in the present. And we saw Ephesians chapter one that says there is incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So God's resurrection brings us power to live a godly life today. Not a perfect life, but a godly life. Maybe you would say, okay, so I want to I live a more godly life. I want to follow the Lord closely, but what does that look like? What does that look like when I go home today to my family, when I go to work or to school tomorrow, as I go through the week ahead? What does that godly life look like? That brings us right back to our series we've been in in the book of Proverbs, a series called Foolproof, God's Wisdom in Proverbs, and from throughout the book of Proverbs, there's it's all about godliness. What does godliness look like in practice? And so we're close to finishing this series. We probably have just a couple of weeks to go. And we're, there's just some loose ends we want to tie up. So we've covered many characteristics of God and, and what godliness looks like. But there's a few more that we want to dig into this morning. And so the message title is Growing in Godliness. Our key verses: Proverbs 21 Uh, verse 3 this morning. And we want to look at two key areas, really four attributes, justice and righteousness, and then secondly, goodness and kindness. And next time, next week, we'll probably look at humility and maybe one or two more. And we'll be done with the topical section of Proverbs. I, for one, will be glad to Move on and, and begin return to teaching through a book, verse by verse, because you know the, the last two thirds of Proverbs is very scattered topically, so you gotta kind of arrange that. And topical messages for me at least are just hard because it's like an erector set. It takes a lot of work to pull it all together and 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 just collect those thoughts and arrange them where it's helpful, but We'll be, uh, we'll be moving on to another book in the, new, in the New Testament this time, starting in just a few weeks. But jumping into this, if you're a believer who is saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, then along with the gift of forgiveness and eternal life, he has also given you a new self. A new self which, listen to this, is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness, Don't take that lightly. Think about that. Created or recreated to be like God in righteousness and holiness. That's what Ephesians 4.24 says. And, And it goes on to say that we're then to put off our old self, our old way of doing things, and put on our new self. And so this is talking about growing in godliness, becoming less like our old sinful self and more like Jesus Christ. His purpose, God's purpose is to conform us to the likeness of his son. So where do you see yourself in terms of godliness? Just getting started, growing, where would you see yourself? Would you say you're following Jesus as Lord really closely? Well as you think about this, let me just use an illustration here. Let's say that little dot in the middle, that's like perfect godliness, or as close as we can come to perfect godliness. And then around that, we'll create some rings, kind of a range, and outside there, are those little bodies, Let's, those are unbelievers. Everything within the shaded area is faith in Christ, but how close would you say you are to that goal of Christ-likeness, of, of complete godliness? Now, we're never gonna get there in this life, but maybe you would say, well, I'm a new believer, I'm just getting started, I'm just learning what God has for me. Or maybe you've been walking with the Lord for many, many years and you would say, I feel closer to Christ. I know this much, the more I get to know God's word and the more I get to know the Lord, the more I realize I'm not as close as I thought I was. And I'm gonna touch on that next week. Sometimes it even feels like we're going backwards because like the more we understand God, the more we feel like, oh my gosh, I am so sinful. Like, like Jason said, the sins of commission, the sins of omission. But where do you see yourself? But even more importantly than where in relation to godliness, um, probably a more important question is which direction are you moving? See, I would almost rather see a brand new believer who's on fire for the Lord, hungry, consuming the word of God, just learning the spiritual discipline, soaking it up, than maybe somebody who has been walking with the Lord many, many years and they grew a lot in the past, but now they're just kind of, holding their own. They're just kind of going tangentially around that circle. They're moving, but they're not moving closer to the Lord in godliness. Or worse yet, maybe a long time believer who's kind of pulling away. Maybe their faith has grown cold. They're a little callous. It just doesn't feel the same. And and so they're actually pulling away, taking steps backwards. Well, no matter where you are on that spectrum, God calls us to be growing in godliness, to be moving toward the center. And so that's what we want to look at this morning, growth in godliness. D.L. Moody said this. He said, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. And he said, by God's help, I am to be that man. I like that. Can you imagine If you are just as close as possible to the center of that circle, godly in all areas of life, imagine what God could do through you. He did great things through D.L. Moody. Now, again, we're not going to achieve perfection in this life, but we should be moving in that direction. We should have that, our sights on that Christ-likeness in everything, So with this in mind, let's look at some characteristics of godliness. And I want to begin with justice and righteousness. And we'll start off with um, just a key verse. I try to pick a verse each week that kind of captures the, captures the, the, the topic the best. And so Proverbs 21, verse 3, if you want to turn there. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 3. And it says this to do what is right and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. And you see, these two words are right and just. They're right there together in the same verse and they're very similar. They're almost like two shades of the same color. They both come from the legal realm. They have kind of a a legal language to them. And they're sometimes even used interchangeably, but there's actually a difference between the two. For simplicity, let's just think of it this way. Think of right or righteous as doing or being right morally. And that's kind of general. And then just or justice is doing or being right in regards to law or judgment or authority, so that's a little more specific. So these two definitions, and we're gonna kinda see this played out. So when you hear the word justice, maybe the, what comes to mind for you is like a legal or a courtroom setting. That's one of the things I think of, and that's not wrong because justice is doing or being right in law, judgment, or authority. And many of the verses in Proverbs speak of justice in this legal context, but it doesn't stop there. There's justice outside of that as well as we'll take a look at. But let's start with just the legal context. Um, back up to Proverbs chapter eight, verse 15. It's like Bible drills, you know, the Iwana days. We're gonna be all throughout uh, the book of Proverbs this morning, chapter eight, verse 15. And it says this, by me kings reign and rulers make laws that are just. Now by me, the word there is, it's referring to wisdom. But we saw back when we studied chapters eight and nine, wisdom is like a pseudonym for Jesus Christ. Anywhere you see wisdom personified in, in Proverbs, you can pretty much put Jesus in there. And we saw how everything it says about wisdom is true of Jesus Christ. So. By me, Jesus Christ, kings reign and rulers make laws that are just. It's talking about reigning and ruling. And so you see that legal element of this verse. Now, um, here are a couple more verses that speak on justice in a legal sense. Flip forward to Proverbs chapter 17, verse 15. Chapter 17, verse 15 says, acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. So, this again has that courtroom feel, either as a judge or as a a jury. And then, forward just two chapters to chapter 19, verse 28. A corrupt witness mocks at justice, and the mouth of the wicked gulps down evil. Pretty, pretty visual word picture there. So again, witness and justice, courtroom setting, they're all related in a, in a legal sense. And so you might say, well, I'm not a lawmaker, I'm not a judge, I'm seldom called to serve on jury duty, so what does this aspect of justice really even have to do with me at all? Well, first of all, our system of government here, do we not vote for lawmakers and vote for judges even to retain them or to elect them? We do, and so we do have a responsibility, a civic responsibility to consider those candidates in light of God's word, their, their actions, their, their history in light of God's word and make wise choices when we judge. But beyond that, beyond just that legal setting, Justice applies to making judgments about uh, anything uh, where, where you have to make a decision, a ruling, a judgment. And there's a lot of that that happens outside of just a courtroom. What would be some times you might think of where you have to make a judgment call? Maybe in parenting or perhaps as an employer, a supervisor, a manager? in a classroom setting, where there's authority involved. Or even as a coach, pretty much anywhere in which you exercise authority, that's an area in which you must make judgments. And you should exercise those judgments with justice. So the opposite of justice would be, in one sense, favoritism, partiality, not making just judgments or decisions. Let's, let's, I'm going to just step outside of Proverbs for a minute, and then I'm going to come back to it. Let me read you a couple of New Testament passages. Romans chapter 2, verse 11 says, for God does not show favoritism. And then in James chapter 2, it says, my brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. And it goes on to say in verse nine of James two, if you show favoritism, you sin sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. So God is saying that favoritism, he, he does not show favoritism, he's just. And we're not to show favoritism either in relation to judgments that we make. God is just. So back to Proverbs then, let's look at chapter 28, verse 21 with this idea of favoritism or, or partiality. 28 verse 21 says, to show partiality is not good, yet a man will do wrong for a piece of bread. What's that saying? Well, two things, it's talking about favoritism. It's not good, it's not right, it's not just. We should not show favoritism. But then secondly, it's talking about bribery. It says, yet a man will do wrong for a piece of bread. That's pretty cheap, it doesn't take much to lure somebody to do that which is wrong, to pervert justice. Even something like a piece of bread, it's a, it's a way of saying for a very small price, a man will do wrong. So it's a warning against both favoritism and bribery. Now, again, you might not be a judge in a courtroom, but as you parent, do you treat your children justly? Or do you show favoritism? I heard about a man who said, I realized my parents favored my twin brother when they asked me to blow up balloons for his surprise birthday party. (laughs) Yeah, that, that would be favoritism. We saw in Genesis, when we went through Genesis, chapter 37, Abraham favored his younger son Joseph and the result was resentment and rivalry and the brothers plotted against Joseph to kill him. See, favoritism brings on resentment and rivalry, and it's, it's wrong in God's eyes. Think about in an employment setting as a manager or a supervisor or maybe a business owner. We have a number of business owners in the church. Do you treat all your people equally and justly? Or do you favor people based on things like their economic status, their race, their gender, their appearance? Do you have your favorites? Are promotions and pay raises based solely on merit Or do you kind of tip the scales in favor of other factors? Are you just in your treatment of employees? And this idea of not showing favoritism applies even within a church setting. Uh, In his autobiography, Mahatma Gandhi, Gandhi, he said that uh, he was, first of all, the great Indian leader of the independence movement, uh, independence of India from, from Britain. And he said that in his student days, he read the Gospels and took them seriously. And he seriously considered converting to Christianity. And he believed that in Jesus, he could find the solution to the caste system that was dividing the people of India, dividing them into different classes. And so one Sunday, he decided to attend services at a nearby church and to talk to the pastor about becoming a Christian. Imagine the influence if Mahatma Gandhi had become a believer, the influence he could have had on the nation of India. But when he entered the sanctuary, he was intercepted by an usher who refused to, let it, to lead him to a seat. He said, why don't you go worship with your people? And he turned him away. And this is what Gandhi said. He said, If Christians have caste differences also, he said, I might as well remain a Hindu. That usher's prejudice and injustice not only betrayed Jesus, but it turned away a person from trusting in the Lord as Savior and a great work that could have been done for the kingdom of God. There can be favoritism. Pastors have to watch out for this. I read an article recently called, an NFL star just walked into my church, how should I treat him? And and it is a warning against favoritism amongst pastors. Hopefully, I'll turn it around, hopefully somebody walks into our church and they're a regular person and we treat them like an NFL star. We treat all people equally, not based on their status or their wealth or their race. Jesus, he's our standard of justice. And he didn't focus on the rich or influential at all. He paid attention to the lost and the least, to the downcast and the outcast. Remember, he called little Zacchaeus down out of the tree, the tax collector, and went and ate at his home. He ate with sinners and tax collectors. This this is the heart of our God. So he calls us, to act justly toward people in our sphere of influence. Let's take a look at a couple more verses, another aspect of this godliness and area of justice. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 7. 29, 7. It says, The righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. They care about justice for the poor, and then flip forward two chapters to chapter 31, verses eight and nine. It says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Now I don't think that's just talking about a courtroom setting but our interactions with people even outside of a legal setting. Now, what is this saying? I don't believe that this is saying, or speaking of government enforced redistribution of wealth, where we take from some and give to others until everybody is the same and nobody has more than anybody else. That's the type of what they call economic egalitarianism that you find in socialism and communism. Why do I not think that's what it's talking about? Because throughout Proverbs, you see that those who work diligently and invest wisely and live righteously enjoy a greater level of prosperity than those who do not. Again, it's not an absolute promise. It's not without exception, but it's a divine principle. We see that. And it is not presented as wrong. So again, those who who work diligently, invest wisely, live righteously, the Bible says they're prosper, they're blessed by God. So it's it's not talking about bringing everybody down to the same level, the exact same outcome. So what is it speaking of? I think two things. First, there should be justice in the laws and courts, and it should treat all people equally. And we have some tragic, historic examples of injustice in our laws in this country. Slavery, voting rights, forced segregation, and more. This is injustice embedded in the laws of the country. Those used to be the laws of the land. And God says, that's not right. That's not just. That doesn't represent the character of God. It is not righteous. Even in Chicago in the 1900s, They had what was known as redlining, where they would take a neighborhood or communities and they draw a red line around it and they would restrict their lending to people in those communities, make it harder to borrow money. And it had a tragic impact that people in those communities couldn't get money to improve their home or to buy a new home. And so home ownership in those areas went way, way down. And it still impacts. Uh, communities there today. They're still feeling the effects of that. But listen to what, flip to Proverbs 22, verses 22 and 23. 22:22, 22, 22, because I think it speaks to this very idea. It says this, do not exploit the poor because they are poor and do not crush the needy in court for the Lord will take up their case and will plunder those who plunder them. Ooh, tough words. Don't oppress the poor. Don't exploit the needy. And that's exactly what was happening. And it wasn't just, you know, it wasn't a government agency, it was banks and lending institutions that had unjust policies. But look what God says. He'll take up their case. He'll be the defense attorney. I wouldn't want to have to go up against God And it says he'll plunder those who plunder them. Now, that can be in this life. It can be in eternity. But God says, I'm going to right this wrong, this injustice. Now, thankfully, the Fair Housing Act in 1968 began to right the ship, began to make it illegal to have these unfair lending practices. But there are still consequences in those neighborhoods today. They were unjust laws and God says it's wrong. So I think first we see a call to justice in laws and policies, both government and corporate. And then secondly, we see that we're to care, well it says that we're to care about justice for the poor and defend the rights of the poor and needy. That's, that's part, of the, part of the having just laws. But then secondly, we're called to show compassion and special care for those who are poor or disadvantaged. Turn to Proverbs chapter 19, verse 17. Disadvantaged would include in scripture those such as orphans and widows and sojourners We're to show a special compassion and care for them. Proverbs 19:17 says, he who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and he, the Lord, will reward him for what he has done. So a compassion, compassion is like sympathy moved into action, doing something about it. We're to care for the poor and the needy. And then flip forward two chapters to 21, verse 13. A warning, if a man shuts his ears to the cry of the poor, he too will cry out and not be answered. The Bible tells us to care for the poor. And we see examples of this throughout scripture. I see them in in different ways. I see examples of caring for the poor individually and also collectively. The good Samaritan, he was by himself as he goes along and he sees the man who was beaten and robbed alongside the road and he individually cares for that man. And then collectively, we saw the churches in Macedonia and and I, I, I I can't say it now. Akiah. I got like a tongue twister going here. And they took up a collection for the poor in the church in Jerusalem. That was collectively caring for the poor. So we see it individually and we see it collectively as you look at scripture. Now I also see a priority in scripture. The first priority is our own family. It says if you won't take care of the members of your own family you're worse than an unbeliever. The second priority is members of the body of Christ, especially those who belong to the family of believers, it says. But it doesn't stop there. Our care should also extend beyond that. It might be the first and second priority, family and church, but it goes beyond that. The good Samaritan, the man he saw on the side of the road, that wasn't a member of his home group. It wasn't his brother. Biologically, it was a stranger. He didn't even know him, and yet he rendered aid, and that's held up as an example of caring for the poor and needy. So, something to note, though, is every example I see in scripture of these voluntar- these gifts, they were voluntary. They were not enforced by government. They were voluntary gifts. They were individuals and churches giving voluntarily. It wasn't mandated by the government. So does that mean the government has no role, should play no role in, in like social programs that, that provide for the needs of the poor? No, I, I wouldn't say that. I think there's a great amount of good that can also be done through the government. Okay, so then the big question, where do you draw the line? What should a government's role be in caring for the poor? And, Should the government compensate people who have been disadvantaged by past laws that were unjust? Those are the subjects of great political debates. And you know what? I believe that good, caring, God-fearing people can have different views on the role of government. The biblical mandate that I see is for government to have just laws and just courts. And the purpose God gives for government is to uphold good and suppress evil. Can that mean caring for the poor and disadvantaged? It can. Can you have different views on the extent of that? You can. Should we still fellowship together as brothers and sisters in Christ? We should. So we've got to allow room for different political views in that regard. But the biblical mandate I see is for government to have just laws and courts, and the biblical mandate I see for us as individuals, and as a church, is to care for the poor and the needy, particularly those who God places in our path. You know, I could take every penny I own, and it would be drained like that, and I wouldn't make a scratch in the needs of downtown Chicago. It wouldn't. It doesn't mean it wouldn't do some good, it would do something. But I believe our priority should also be those who God places in our path. What about my neighbors? What about the people in my church, the people in my family, my coworkers? What are their needs and how can I justly meet those needs? How can I provide care for them? I think that's our priority. Let me give you an example. Our church supports a missionary couple in Russia. And it's a couple named Sergei and, and Helen Kromishchikov. And they actually lead a series of churches there and, and minister to these people. And they do an amazing job despite many hardships. And despite those hardships, their, their updates that they send out each month are always filled with praises for what God is doing. Those people pray for our church in ways that convict me. It's like, wow, am I praying for them like that? I mean, they pray for you, and, and here's a picture of a Christian gathering at Christmas of one of those little churches. I love how they decorated it up. They go from town to town, and they, they shepherd a series of churches that they've planted, but recently, the only car they had broke down. The whole thing rusted out from underneath, and it would have cost more to repair it than it was worth. And so they used this car to travel to these churches and minister to them. And so here's what they decided to do. They decided to sell their one-bedroom flat, their apartment, and take that money and buy a church so they could could, uh, drive to these, excuse me, buy a car so they could drive to these churches and, and minister to them. They said that public transportation is just dangerous and really difficult. And so the value of their flat was 500,000 rubles. That sounds like a lot. I did the conversion online at $6,500. And this was their prayer. Lord, would you bless us that with this $6,500 we could buy a car in the year 2005, 2006 year model that will be reliable, that will allow us to travel to these churches. They were gonna sell their house so they could buy a 15 year old car. Well, thankfully, when someone in our church heard about that need, they immediately put forward the funds to buy that car. They said, don't sell that house. And they put forward the funds to buy that car. That's the heart, a heart of compassion for those in need. Praise God. I'm I'm convicted by that. That was their first response. That's a need, and I can meet it. And I'm going to do it. Now, are there people you know, whether in your family, a brother and sister in Christ, a co-worker, whatever, in your neighborhood, are there people you know who are in need? And if so, maybe a step in godliness that God would want you to take is to have a heart of compassion and to reach out and meet that need. This is part of what godliness looks like, justice and righteousness, Secondly, I want to look at a little shorter section, these next two, goodness and kindness. When I was a, a little boy, we'd pray the common table prayer. You know that one? God is great. God is good. And we thank him for our food. Amen. They don't, they don't rhyme. Good, good and food. Good and food. But, but also, it's just kind of like it was reiterating. God is great. He's really good. And he's also good kind of mediocre. He's not great, but he's not bad either. So he's like great, and he's good, and let us thank for our food. Well, there's different uses of the word good in the Bible. And one of the uses of that word is blameless. And that's what it was saying. It wasn't saying God is great, God is mediocre. No, God is great, God is blameless. But there's also other definitions of this word good. And I want you to just think about these as we look at goodness. Some other definitions, it can also mean right, appropriate, pleasant, delightful, best. These are all elements of this word good in the Hebrew language. So take a look at, with this in mind, take a look at Proverbs chapter three, go back a little bit, verse 27. Chapter three, verse 27 says this. Do not withhold good from those who deserve it when it is within your power to act. Do not say to your neighbor, come back later, I'll give it to you tomorrow, when you now have it with you. Now, do not withhold good. That's kind of what Jason was talking about in terms of sins of omission. Sin is not just the bad that we do. It's the good that we know we should do, but we shouldn't do, or but we didn't do, excuse me. So, a a little Sunday school teacher, what Jason shared reminded me of a Sunday school teacher who asked his class, does anyone know what sins of omission are? And one little boy said, yeah, I do, I do. Those are sins that we should have committed but didn't. (laughs) He kinda didn't quite get it. No, those are good that we should have done, but we didn't do. And that's kinda what it's saying here. Do not withhold good from those who deserve it. But then it goes on to give a specific example. Don't say to your neighbor, come back later, I'll give it to you tomorrow, when you have it with you now. Now, this here good means right or appropriate. Do not withhold what is right or appropriate from those who deserve it. And, and then it gives that example, come back later, come back tomorrow. This would be what we know as like stringing someone along right? Dragging this thing out. You have the ability to settle it right now. That would be good. That'd be right. That'd be appropriate, but eh, come back back later. There's elements of dishonesty in this, elements of selfishness and just manipulation in this. And God says, that is not good. Don't withhold good. What might that look like today in, in the world we live in? Well, withholding good like that might be not paying someone's wages on time. You got the money in the bank, but you don't cut the checks promptly. That'd be an example. Or maybe not returning some property that you borrowed from your neighbor even though you're finished using it. In business, companies often extend credit terms to their customers. You're probably familiar with the term net 30 days. It means you can take the merchandise now or we'll ship it now and we'll bill you and the payment will be due in 30 days, net 30 days. But customers often don't pay in 30 days. Back in my corporate days, the AR department was right outside my office and I heard all day long as they're trying to do collections, they pay sometimes in 45 days, 60 days, 90 days or more. Not because they don't have the money, but because they know they can get away with it. So what happens is the supplier finances the customer through their accounts receivable. God says, that's not good, that's not right. Don't do that, do not withhold good when you have the ability to take care of it now. So those would be maybe some examples, and again, it's, it's dishonest and it's selfish. So in order to do good to others, we have to be thinking about others and not just ourselves. How does this impact them? What are their needs? Now usually in this country, when there's an emergency, like a big storm or a flood, it tends to bring out the good in people, doesn't it? You see that, I see that in my neighborhood. Trees blown down on people's roofs and everybody's out there with their saws cutting them up. It tends to bring out the good. But it shouldn't take an emergency to bring out the good in people. See, we should be in the habit of doing good all the time, even in the simple things. It can be simple everyday things. Maybe your neighbor has a lawnmower that breaks down. We should be quick to loan him our own. Or maybe there's a need for transportation or transportation to get to a medical appointment or just to run an errand for an elderly neighbor. We should be looking for those opportunities and eager to do that good. We should be in the habit of doing good. Take a look at Proverbs chapter 11, verse 27. Eleven twenty-seven. He who seeks good finds goodwill, but evil comes to him who searches for it. Okay, so what is it saying? He who seeks good, looking out for an opportunity to do good. Where can I do good? What are the needs of my neighbor? That's seeking good. And it says that person finds goodwill. In other words, they find favor both from man and God. Take a look at one chapter four, chapter 12, verse two. It says a good man obtains, obtains favor from the Lord, but the Lord condemns a crafty man. Now, crafty, not like the crafting event. I always like to kid the ladies at the crafting event. I go, you know, the devil was more, the serpent was more crafty than the other creatures. (laughs) No, not that kind of crafty, scheming. You know, hey, if I don't pay this now and keep the money in the bank a little longer and I can collect more interest on it, things like that, that's crafty. A good man obtains favor from the Lord, but the Lord condemns a crafty man. Why does God want us to be good toward others? Why is that godliness? Because that goodness is a reflection of our God. God is good and he wants us to reflect his goodness in this world. And then there's kindness. It's again very similar to goodness. Goodness is a little more general. Kindness is more specific. Kindness means to treat a person well. So it's specifically talking about how we treat people. And both of these, by the way, are fruits of the spirit, goodness and kindness. So take a look at Proverbs chapter 11, verse 17. We're going to be around chapter 11 and 12 for a little bit. Chapter 11, verse 17, a kind man benefits himself, but a cruel man brings trouble on himself. What's that saying? That's that's something like what Jesus said. You're gonna reap what you sow. If you're good, you'll find goodwill. If you're kind, it's gonna benefit you. Now, this isn't talking about karma. It's talking about a sovereign God who's involved in the affairs of mankind. He says, you do good, and I'll do good toward you. I will bless you. We see that theme. Now, I think kindness, is becoming a lost art. I mean, more and more, kindness is being replaced with rudeness. Have you noticed that? There's just not much kindness anymore. I, I heard about a lady who was ill, so she went to the doctor and he did, a, he did a whole series of tests and exams, and he came back and he said, I'm sorry to say to you, but you have rabies. And oh no, and then he left the, the room for a few minutes and when he came back, she was feverishly writing on a piece of paper and he said, what are you doing? Are you writing out her, your will? She goes, no, I'm making a list of the people I'm going to bite. <laughs> and that kindness and that goodness, right? Now you, hopefully you don't bite people. <laughs> I hope you grew out of that as a toddler. But what about biting words? We do bite people with our words. We easily can do that. We spent a whole Sunday talking about our choice of words. We saw that words can hurt or heal. They can tear down or they can build up. Words are really important. So what about our words? Take a look at Proverbs chapter 12, verse 25. 25, an anxious heart weighs a man down, but a kind word cheers him up. The use of our words to build up, to heal, to help. I'll bet that not a day goes by that you and I don't come in contact with multiple people who could desperately use a kind word. Think about what you did yesterday, Saturday, all the things you did, the places you went, the people you encountered. I'll bet you encountered people who are in desperate need of a kind word. And it doesn't cost us anything to be kind to people. God's saying, this should be your default mode. Not, well, if you're nice to me, I'll be nice to you. But you know, if you're snarky to me, (laughs) look out. It's not what we're called to do or to be kind. A few years ago, a fellow believer modeled for me one way to show kindness when going out to eat in a restaurant. We went out to lunch together, and he said to the server, he first took note of her name, and he said, Hey, Julie, we're going to be asking a blessing for our food in just a few minutes. Is there any way that we could pray for you? And I've done that, and I am amazed at how the heart of that server just melts. And they just begin to open up and share. Oh my goodness, I can't believe you asked. My mother's in the hospital. She's my primary caregiver. I'm a single mom. I really have this need right now. And just goes on to share these things. And oftentimes this simple act of kindness leads to an opportunity to show and share the love and the kindness of God. So a very simple act of kindness. I'm going out to a dinner at Deborah tomorrow, it's her birthday on Tuesday, and, and hold me to it, we need to practice that. We've gotten a little out of practice with COVID, but a simple way, kind words, and how they can bring um, healing and, and cheer someone up. Take, a, well, before we go there, kindness is godliness, because it's a reflection of God's kindness. Let me read you a couple of passages from the New Testament. Titus 3, 4 and 5 says, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. It was kindness and love were God's motivation for coming down and having his plan of salvation for you and for me. His kindness. And then he tells us, Ephesians 4, 32, Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Forgive each other as God forgave you. Be kind to each other as God was kind to you. Kindness is a reflection of God, and it's a measure of godliness. Back in February, my oldest son David uh, was driving down a little road by his office in Iowa, and a mail carrier pulled out in front of him from behind a snowbank. And he wasn't going very fast. They collided at about 20 miles per hour but it totaled my son's car, nobody was hurt. I was kinda glad it did, because that car, it always worried me when he drove out here. It was it was due for an upgrade, a replacement. It was rusting out from the bottom, just like the Kormishchikovs. Uh, but anyway, it totaled his car, and there was a man there who witnessed the accident. He owned a business right there on the corner, and he came up to my son, who he didn't even know, and he said, hey, you can use my Lincoln Navigator for the next week while you take care of a rental car. I was blown away by that man's kindness. This was a stranger, not only was I blown away by it, I was really convicted by it. Would I do that for someone else? Would I loan my car to a stranger, a 27-year-old young man? And then another friend drove him an hour each way to Sioux City, which is the nearest place to pick up a rental car, and drove him back again when he had to drop off the car. And then another friend drove him two hours to Lincoln, Nebraska to catch a flight where he flew down to Texas to pick up his replacement car. Amazing kindness. Again, I was really convicted by that. This is one of the things I love about small town America though. This still seems to be more of that. But am I that kind? Kindness is a reflection of God. He says, I've been kind to you, Paul. You need to be kind to other people. Well, how can you become more like God in this regard? Remember, kindness and goodness, they are uh, fruits of the Spirit. They're produced in us by the Spirit of God, but they're produced through spending time with God, soaking up His Word, meditating on His truths, enjoying fellowship with Him in prayer. When we do these things, the Holy Spirit produces this fruit within us. When we draw close to God, His love and kindness and goodness pours into us and we can't help but become like him. That fruit is born and then out of the overflow of that comes kindness and goodness to those around us. That fruit is nourishing to the people around us. So goodness and kindness are spiritual fruit and they're kind of spiritual barometers too. They say a little bit about how much time we're spending with the Lord. So As we wrap this up, the resurrection we celebrated last Sunday proved that Jesus is Lord and that God gives us power, resurrection power, to lead a godly life. And he calls us to be like him in holiness, in righteousness, and some of his attributes, justice, righteousness, goodness, and kindness, He wants us to be like him in these things. So we began by considering where are we in regard to godliness? And more importantly, which direction are we moving? Are we growing in godliness daily? Maybe you've known the Lord is your savior Savior for several years, but you haven't really been growing in godliness. You haven't been obedient to to God as Lord in your life. Or maybe you look back at a time when you were really growing and you moved close to the Lord and now it's kind of grown cold and stale and you're kind of slipping backwards. Regardless of where you are, God calls us to move toward godliness, to make progress. Again, not perfection, but progress toward godliness. I was talking with Sharon Riemann this week. She's recovering from a fall and a broken hip. And she's doing quite well, but she said, I'm really glad because each day as a physical therapist comes, I'm seeing improvement every single day. I'm seeing progress. We should experience the same thing in spiritual therapy and godliness every day. We should be seeing progress in godliness. We should be setting our sights on the center in in Christ-likeness and moving in that direction with God's help. So let's be mindful of these things today as we return home, as we go back to work or school tomorrow, as we continue on this week, this year, the goodness and kindness of God, his justice and his righteousness, he wants to develop that in you and in me. So let's Hold each other to this. Let us grow together in godliness. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are an awesome God and it amazes me that you're all powerful and yet you're all good. We're not like that, God. We get a little power and we get corrupt. We veer off course, but you're all powerful. You're great and you're still good. And you're righteous and you're just in everything that you do. And you're full of loving kindness. And God, you demonstrated your kindness toward us in the gift of your son. When we were lost and hopeless, God, you came down. You died for us and you rose to life again. God, you accept us just as we are, all messed up. But you love us too much to leave us that way. You want to change us. God, you want to transform us into the likeness of your Son. And so, God, I pray that you would work in us with your resurrection power. Point out to us these areas in our lives that are not godly. Maybe things we're doing or things we're not doing. God, show that to us. Prompt us, encourage us, remind us, keep us moving forward. In growth and godliness, God, for your kingdom and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.